Welcome to our Open Source Startup Podcast. This is uh, Tim from SSVC and Robbie from Cowboy Ventures. We're doing this live every first time ever in our 125 or something related episode number. So super excited to have Mars, co-founder of Metaphor, which is a social platform from data. So welcome, Mars. Thanks. Um, pleasure to be here. And thanks for inviting me. Yeah, we're absolutely thrilled to have you here. And like Tim said, this is our first time doing this. So we're really excited to have you here in person in San Francisco. And on the podcast, we like to start at the very beginning. So why don't you go all the way back to the start and tell us where the early idea for Metaphor came from and the roots from Data Hub and LinkedIn. We'll get right into the early story. Sounds good. It's, it's a long story, so <laughs> maybe uh, hold your horses. <laughs> <laughs> it all started about, at this point, almost, I'll say seven years ago when I first joined LinkedIn. Uh, I was recruited from Google as a tech lead for a, sort of a new, a brand new team called the Metadata Team at LinkedIn. So the team's mission was to essentially gather metadata inside of LinkedIn, serving one particular use case, which is uh, data discovery and understandability. Think of it as kind of a Google search engine for data, if you will, for LinkedIn. And the reason behind that was pretty straightforward because LinkedIn, you know, at that very moment realized that, famously called by the CEO saying that they're they no longer a consumer web company, they're a data company. So of course they have a great consumer product, but what's really making money for the company is the data. And as a reason of that, they've scaled the data team very pretty rapidly at that point to the extent where they have a lot of people in the team but they're not really collaborating, right? They're all kind of working on their own, you know, working on things that they are somewhat familiar with within their own little group. But beyond that, they actually have no visibility into what kind of data the company has, right? The question has always popped up and said, hey, do we have this kind of data? Oh, I see this thing in the warehouse. What does that really mean? And a lot of that go back to the data engineering team because they put the data there in the first place. And the data engineering team sort of got fed up by all these questions and said, like, can we have a way to allow these people to self-service, right, for finding things? But more importantly, for them to document this thing, right, because the data engineer actually doesn't have a lot of context about these things. They, they were in charge of building the pipe to get the water in, but they have no idea what flows in the pipe, so to speak. So that's kind of the genesis of the team was to solve that particular use case. And that's what I got sold on at the time by the manager of the team. <laughs> but the funny, funny story when is I joined the team literally one or two months. The edict came from the top, our CDO. Literally, he was saying, hey, I lead a team of a thousand you know, data scientists, engineers, and whatnot. If we can only do one thing right, and I hope we can do more than one thing this year, but if we can only do one thing right, it'll be GDPR, right? Because GDPR just came into effect or about to come into effect and it's a huge, huge deal for LinkedIn because they knew the law was written for them and Google and Microsoft and all that. So basically, the, the sort of the, the mandate was say, hey, drop everything, whatever you work on, forget about it. You know, just work on solving GDPR for LinkedIn. And our team was kind of in a very unique position in that mix because we are actually the only team that has visibility into the data landscape inside of LinkedIn. No one actually have any clue about what kind of data LinkedIn has other than us, even though we don't really have visibility in everything, but we are the best shot, so to speak, at that time. So my team sort of quickly reorganized itself and then work on you know, GDPR slash compliance and the foundational piece of it, which is gathering metadata, you know, computing lineage, understanding what kind of 
data we have, you know, tagging, all the good good stuff there. And then um, that's basically the thing that we worked on for the next year and a half to two years, flat out for LinkedIn. And as part of that, we realized that whatever we initially built for search and discovery, which was literally a web app, right? If you look at it at the end of the day, it's a simple web app. You just need to handle, I don't know, 10 QPS at most, right? It wasn't really designed to handle the sort of the more programmatic driven sort of workload from compliance, right? And then the sort of, you know, reliability required for that and so on and so forth. So we kind of rewrote the entire thing at that point and turned it into more of a platform, right? Because we want to have, you know, the sort of reliability and robustness that we can handle and then the sort of the scalability to handle compliance-related tasks. And as part of that, we sort of decided, hey, look, we still need to service our old, you know, discovery task at the same time, this new compliance use cases. Is there any way that we can turn this thing into a more general platform? Because ultimately, it's just gathering metadata and relating metadata and serving metadata back, right? Can we turn this into a more generic thing? So one, to help ourselves, right? So we don't have to duplicate work on two different use cases, just sort of share code as much as possible. But two, potentially also help other teams later on if they want to use the metadata or put metadata into us. And as part of that entire exercise, we basically build up this generic platform or as close to generic as possible inside of LinkedIn metadata platform. And we actually also open source it as a result of that exercise. The open source project was called Data Hub. And the Data Project was actually very popular. Uh, if you're in this field, you probably heard of them before. And that was kind of the, the sort of the genesis of the open source project and the team itself. And after the sort of GDPR period, after we solved that for LinkedIn, which was obviously a huge deal at the time, we sort of just keep carrying on this mission of, hey, can we have keep pushing our general metadata platform to solve other use cases inside of LinkedIn? And, you know, through sort of sheer grid or luck or whatnot, we were able to rally a lot of team around this concept of saying, hey, you know, we have a platform. Why don't you just put your metadata into our platform? And we already have maybe 80% of the metadata you need anyway. Just bring that 20%. Then you don't have to build everything from scratch over again. And then ultimately, we gained a lot of momentum inside the LinkedIn. This kind of became the central piece inside the LinkedIn for the data management, various data management use cases. When I left LinkedIn, I believe when I counted the number of use cases inside the LinkedIn, it's about 20 to 30 different use cases. And these are like sizable use cases, not tiny use cases, right? So basically, once again, sort of attested the need. And then once you have like a general metadata platform, how useful that will be. So that's kind of the history inside of LinkedIn and the open sourcing part of it. And as for metaphor, when we open source Data Hub, we open source it sort of thinking that, hey, look, we'll build something cool as an engineer, right? Let's just share with the rest of the world and see what they think. The project itself sort of took on the life of its own. The project just got very, very popular, maybe because of other companies also facing GDPR problem. <laughs> maybe other companies also happen to have a lot of these related issues and there isn't any good open source software available at the time. So it got very popular in that sense. And at that time, also a couple of top tier VC reached out to me uh, directly, you know, including Anderson Harvard's, Redpoint, you know, Greylock, Sequoia, et cetera, you name it. They all directly came and say, hey, look, we're very interested in this area and we want to invest. 
when are you quitting your job? <laughs> so, you know, at the time I was actually having my, my second child was on the way. <laughs> so it wasn't really the best time to discuss starting a company with your wife uh, when uh, you're sort of undergoing all the stress of having the second child. So we didn't, I didn't entertain the idea immediately. And also at the same time, I want to make sure there is a business model here or business to be had here, right? You don't start a company just because VC want to throw money at you. That would be the wrong reason to start a company. So spend the next six to nine months, I believe, me and my co-founder, who was the manager of the team and I was the tech lead of the team, we interviewed close to 100 practitioner leaders and whatnot in the field across various different industries and whatnot and trying to figure out whether they have a problem like this and whether there is a solution that solved such a problem. And the answer was a resounding, yes, we need something like this. And no, there isn't a good solution out there. So at that point, we realized there is actually an opportunity here. And at the same time, we're sort of getting a little bit fed up with big company, you know, politics, red tape and whatnot. So starting a company seems like a very attractive option to really take the things and then and take it, you know, sort of fulfill its full potential outside the confine of LinkedIn. So about three years ago, you know, me and my co-founders decided to leave LinkedIn and start a company. When you start a metaphor, I think you talked about how LinkedIn adopted a metadata system or team, right? And GDPR actually sounds like it's definitely the first use case. But when when we see, because I remember we're talking to and looking at Data Hub early, it doesn't seem like every single company is looking at it just for a GDPR purpose only. Like that's not the only single entry point. And so I'm curious, like when you're looking to start the company, were you imagining everybody will start just GDPR? Or do you imagine somebody will look at this metadata system and can come in any you know, different kind of use cases? Because I feel like that's probably one of the questions I think lots of people have around this sort of catalog space is like, what is the first thing I should use it for? Because we've seen people use it for 20, 30 different things. Do you have one place to start? Or I guess that's really a, might be challenging to navigate the market. Yeah. Because of nature, right? Absolutely. And just to be clear, compliance wasn't the first use case. The first use case was data and discovery. Compliance sort of took over the bulk of the work because for the obvious reason, right? So, and then also when Data Hub was open source, the compliance bit was not. Hmm. Because the compliance bit is considered proprietary inside of LinkedIn. Uh -huh. And we didn't find that to be universally useful if we open source it anyway. So we didn't open source that particular part of the product. And also the third clarification is, uh, as a company startup right now, that is also not our focus. <laughs> yeah. We're not doing compliance as a use case. Yeah. So to answer your questions, we do generally see the patterns in the market, which kind of following the footsteps of LinkedIn. LinkedIn obviously is a very proprietary specific environment. And because of this nature, we were able to push so many use cases so in such a short period of the time, you know, because it's the same company, you're able to align people quicker. When we go outside and talk to most of the company and our customers and whatnot, I think universally, the first thing they want to solve is visibility and understandability, right? Because you'll be very surprised to find out, even for a company much smaller than LinkedIn, for example, they still have absolutely no clue what data they have. And by that, I don't mean you go to your Snowflake, go to your Databricks and query your information schema and see all the table. No, that is not knowing what kind of data you have. That's just knowing what tables you have in the company, right? What I mean by understanding, that means, you know, first of all, understanding the semantic meaning of these things, right? Almost think of it as, hey, I need to have 
sort of in my head how this semantic layer, whether it has explicitly defined or implicitly built up through various things, how does that really work? And also things like lineage, once again, right? That sort of thing is very, very hard to get from your data management provider, so to speak. You know, some of them do provide lineage within their system, but a lot of time we're talking about lineage across system, right? Not just whatever in your warehouse, but how does that link to your BI side of the story, dashboard, when you go downstream and when you go upstream, how does that link to your data sources, right? APIs or external sources, SFTP, believe it or not, that's still a very popular thing out there, right? So how do you link that end-to-end is also a big challenge, right? So all of these things help you to understand what kind of data you have. And that's what I meant by knowing what kind of data you have, not just a what tables do you have and what columns do you have in those tables, right? So that is, in our opinions, that is problem number one. Because everything else sort of depends on that. If you don't know what you have, then forget about doing all these other things. That's kind of, it's counterproductive, right? You cannot start from compliance and say, hey, that's our first use case, right? Because if you don't even know your data, how are you going to enforce compliance? And forget about it. So yeah, I hope that answers your question. And that, that sort of explains why there are a couple of vendors out there, including us, trying to solve that first order problem. I don't know if all of them also have their eyes on the price of all these subsequent use cases that they can imagine, but we are because we know it's going to happen. It's a matter of time. But if you don't solve the first problem, forget about the rest. Yeah, I think it's a really good point because if you don't have good data to start with and you're trying to add on other use cases that require you to have one centralized place where you have all of your data, then it's really hard to add those on. I want to go back to Data Hub because... Metaphor is not tied to Data Hub, and we have mostly open source founders on this podcast where there'll be a project that's in some way tied to the company, which is not the case here. And I want to talk a bit about why that is, your experience there, and then also how that informed not making Metaphor open source. Right. Um, so we have, when we first came out of LinkedIn, it was, has always been our plan to start an open core right, you know, company. I mean, I would even dare to say that was a big part of the reason we got top tier investor invested in us because they saw the traction in open source and they see that this is, you know, just follow the open core playbook and you'll be fine sort of story there, right? We didn't go down that path, not because we didn't want to, it's because we didn't have a choice. The project was taken away from us. So that avenue was basically shut down for us. So we decided, hey, the real option there is our Two, one is to start another open source project or half work data hub at that point, or we start something completely proprietary internally. We had a lot of discussion, a lot of debates and whatnot. In the end, we decided to take the proprietary route. There's a couple of reasons behind that. We can definitely double click and it's a long conversation. Why? But one of the main sort of reason behind it is even before any of these things happened when we first came out we had always thought about rewriting the whole thing from the ground up because there's a lot of things that we learned in that process that we did not do well and we feel like rewriting would be a good thing to do. We sort of thinking that we'll do that gradually with the current open source project because you know people probably know very well how hard it is to evolve an open source project and let alone rewriting it. But when that option got shut down, then we basically have a blank canvas, so to speak, at that point. And we decided, hey, actually, that's a great opportunity for us to rewrite. And 
So we did some interesting analysis afterward. We rewrote the whole thing in about half the time that it took us to write Data Hub inside of LinkedIn with a third of the size of the team, right? So we basically say, hey, for some magic reason, we are six times more productive. You know, obviously being startup, being able to move very quickly is part of it. You know, obviously our experience help us to quickly, without having to do a lot of redesigns, thinking from, from the ground up, thing that also help. But also because of us conscientiously chose to go down this proprietary route, we don't have to worry about how do we make our product open sourceable, right? How do we make sure that someone else can run this in their environment? Simply, we can just, you know, have a high dependency on AWS native service without worrying about if anyone else would need that or not. We can leverage a lot of things out there, whatever the best the cloud can provide without having to worry about, hey, would this work for another company in a different cloud or, you know, if they are pure Kubernetes, would that work for them and all that. So those factors help us to quickly rewrite, in our opinion, a much better product within a very short period of time. So yeah, hopefully that uh, set the context there. Yeah, so I think it's helpful to know like there's reasons to not open source because it can move faster and can be much more focused. But there is pros for open mm-hmm. source, right? Like I think that's kind of where the question, I'm just curious about like, we've seen other founders maybe in somewhat similar situations, they actually end up forking the project or still end up open sourcing because for them, open sourcing means I can build trust faster. There's like the metadata is, uh, is still treated as like a sensitive data. Right, a lot of people can feel yep. like this is actually like my data infra. How much like I treat my database? I should probably treat my metadata platform similar. So, in my mind, it might be easier to open source. I think if you want to start building a data infra company, you know, open sourcing means trust is faster. I can try, and there's an escape patch, right? There's also like I've seen companies feel like conversations go into the middle, and their potential customers like, if you would open source, I would just use you or buy. You you can you will hear that. I'm mm-hmm. sure you probably hear that too sometimes, right? So it might be tempting, some factors, very tempting to open source. So do you think that those are not issues at all? Or you just believe that there's just enough quality and speed gives you so much more advantage that we'll just build faster, people will adopt it, you know, we don't worry about those trust issues or how do you weigh the trade-offs here? Yeah, it's like everything in life is always a trade-off, right? And let's talk about the pros of open source. Uh, I think that is important. Obviously, this is open source startup podcast. So I think people would definitely want to hear that. And they probably already know I'm probably repeating something that they're familiar with. But I think the number one benefit of open source is sales funnel. A lot of people might find that controversial because they have the open source ideologies and whatnot. But the reality from a company perspective, startup perspective, open source is an excellent funnel. There's no doubt about it. You know, basically try before you buy, typical, you know, tried and true business model. Plus this being data infra, the engineers love to try things on their own without talking to sales, right? Before they decided they want to adopt something, right? And then also the natural, hey, you know, because I started with some open source project later on, I can, you know, migrate to manage open source easily. You know, when I really experience the the power of the product and like it, and decide that I don't want a headache of managing this, I can go down that path. So no doubt. And today, Data Hub is 
really, really popular and you can see a lot of big brands. If you go to the, the website, you can see there's a lot of big company, predominantly tech or tech-like company, granted, but there is a lot of good logo there to be had. So no doubt about that. There's definitely a huge plus for open source. There is another benefit of open source, which is perhaps debatable, but in some project or some specific sector, this might be relevant, is standard setting. Especially when it comes to metadata, some people argue, hey, we want to have, you know, standardized metadata models and whatnot interface. And to really make that work, as an industry, we only know one way to make that work, which is through standardization, right? And an open source is a good vehicle for that. And then the third open source benefit, I think you kind of touch on it as well, which is auditability. If it's something that's sensitive, securities, infosec, and whatnot, a lot of time knowing that I can go and take a look at a source code is enough to placate people, so to speak, right? Whether they actually do it or not, I have my doubt, but knowing that it is there for them if they want to, it is important, right? So some, I think there's some new terminology being thrown around called source available rather than open source, right? Or some terms around that, along that line. So mostly for that sort of third you know, benefits. And, and you know, traditionally you have this sort of, hey, you know, source code escrow, right? Because you're a startup, what if you die? You know, I want to make sure that I have access to source code. So if you have an open source story, generally that is a lot less sensitive because people will just say, okay, like you said, you know, if nothing works or if we sever our relationship with the vendor, we can always roll it ourselves, so to speak. So those are the, as far as we are aware of the three main open source benefit. Going backward, the third one doesn't really require you to run an open core model, right? I mean, you can open source whenever you feel like, you know, because of people just want to see your code doesn't mean that you have to make your code runnable by someone, right? It's just like they want to, you know, audit your code. So that part, I, I don't think you need to be an open core or open source startup, so to speak, to achieve that. And then moving back to the second point, which is standard setting. It's a very compelling reason, but it sort of really work out in real life with technology company. The so-called standard, you know, the gray standard out there, you know, I'll, say, I'll use some hardware example, right? USB, right? That's one of the greatest things that ever standard, the industry standardized on, right? Or whatever PC interface or whatever, right? All of those things, obviously, are great. Software, there's similar analogies there. But if you look at a lot of them, what happened is not because all of a sudden everybody just say, hey, we have an open source standard that's just all adhere to it. It was mostly because some company that is driving their own standard or own proprietary, if you will, format and turn it into like a universal standard. And in metadata world, I don't see that emerging yet. First of all, there isn't a lot of strong incentive for vendor to work with each other. There's still a lot of everyone just, you know, go on their own and so on and so forth. Or vendor will just say, hey, look, I'm going to publish my APIs with you, know, you want to integrate, integrate with my API. I'm not going to create any standard, right? Or work with your standard. I'm just going to say, I have an API. Because it serves both purposes for integration and maybe for my app and for my user to integrate with my system. So trying to like really bend backward to work with a standard seems a bit backward, right? So that is why we think in an ideal world, that would be a very good thing to do. 
But so far, we haven't seen anything worked out. There's actually a couple of projects. I think Open Lineage is one of the, probably the most successful project out there. But even then, the scope is pretty confined. And even that being the case, they haven't gained universal adoption either. So that's kind of the second point. The first point, I have no nothing to go against it, so to speak. It is a unique benefit of an open source startup. Proprietary company just couldn't do it, full stop. Mm-hmm. And actually, the, one of the last episodes we did, we talked a lot about the challenges of, especially the open core model, where you're giving away your most valuable piece of what you're building for free. So there's definitely pros and cons of it. I want to talk a bit about your decision on what to build when you started Metaphor, because Data Hub's out there. It's getting adopted. You talked about how it was taking on a life of its own. And then you talked about, in some ways, rewriting or like rebuilding the product. But I imagine you probably looked and said, okay, we're going to go after a certain type of users. We're going to build it so that like some Data Hub users, this might be a fit for, some it won't be. How did you decide what to change about what you built at Data Hub and like the kind of user that you were going after that might be different from Data Hub? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one thing at least we still firmly believe today, is that platform play is the sort of the ultimate play. We believe that is really where the most of the value is. But you cannot go to a company and say, hey, I'm going to sell you a metadata platform. Nobody will buy you. <laughs> first of all, they don't understand what you're talking about. Second of all, it's like, so you asked me to buy a platform first and then I can sell my use cases? No, no one will buy into that. right? So we never brand ourselves or sell ourselves as a platform. We do talk to our customers of the benefits that adopting us and using that to unlock future use cases that they haven't anticipated yet or they haven't think about in their particular group yet. But we don't sell it as a metadata platform. So in order to do that, we need to bring like a very compelling product that solves a very obvious use case that, that there is budget behind, so to speak. And then, you know, frankly speaking, many of the vendors out there sort of target um, under the general data governance umbrella. It is a well-established field, especially in, in enterprise. And there is ample of budget for that. There is established incumbents in those fields, but the incumbents are very old and slow at this point. You know, some of the more established incumbents are already more than 10 years, right? At this point, the product hasn't changed for the last eight. <laughs> so, so. It is a good target for startup, right? Because you know you can move in, you can move a lot faster, you can deliver things that are significantly better using the latest technology and whatnot compared to incumbent. And you don't have to go and educate people why they need data governance. There's already an existing budget. So the replacement story is easier than selling something brand new. So in terms of the actual target group of that, it's actually surprisingly kind of diverse. This in and of itself is its own challenge. Because data governance is kind of a cross-functional, cross-company goal. The budget is clear. Generally, there is some data governance committee that uh, task to improve data governance inside of the company. That part is clear. But the buyer is a little bit tricky. Because the buyer here, on paper, yes, the data governance team is going to sign it off and sign off the final contract and whatnot. But they're not necessarily the actual user of it. Because data governance being a team sport, that means everyone in the company need to get involved to some extent. But specifically, there are two groups of people that are involved. One is the data engineers, right? These are the folk who wanted a tool that 
help to solve their own challenges, for example, observability, looking at lineage and all that. That is their side of the story. At the same time, similar to what I mentioned, the very initial data hub use case inside of LinkedIn, they want to provide a tool to their customers, their stakeholder, who are mostly data analysts, you know, business analysts, and to some extent, business users, business stakeholders, a tool for them to self-service, a tool for them to help themselves, so to speak. It used to be the two are different tools, right? In the age of Informatica, for example, right? uh, the data engineer will have the Informatica data catalog or something like that. And they'll say, this is our tool, right? I don't think any analyst will want to open that tool <laughs> and use it, right? And then the analysts didn't really have a tool, so to speak. They might just be using Wikipage and whatnot to sort of capture their knowledge. But very quickly, enterprises and other companies realize it is one tool that is needed because, you know, data engineer will contribute certain part as important for their consumer and vice versa, right? So you cannot really buy two isolated tools for people. And then they, you want one tool to solve, you know, maybe more than one use cases. But it has to be a, a single tool because you want them to share the same technical business and sort of people metadata, if you will, right? So that is essentially who we're targeting as metaphor. And where we feel like is our strengths is we have, you know, one of the most user-friendly, the easiest to use and most business user-friendly tool out there, while we also have a very, very strong technical tool underneath the surface as well. So we have a tool that can satisfy both sides of the spectrum. But typically what we see is, yes, you know, we typically engage with the data, the core data slash data engineer team, because they are looking for a tool for their stakeholder. And we often hear people say, oh, the first criteria we have is it has to be easy to use, super user-friendly, <laughs> right? And then we'll be like, yes, that's us right there, <laughs> right? So yeah, that's, I hope that explains it. It's, it's a little bit complicated in our case. There isn't a clear, hey, we just need to make this group happy and then everybody will be happy, yeah, sort of thing. So I'm curious because you mentioned like building the product to be user-friendly, easy to use is important, right? I think that's very, very key. Obviously there's multiple users, multiple possibilities. So making that is already probably difficult. And now you also have like, open source alternatives, right? So I, I'm just curious, like, does your user typically, what percentage of them already tried out an open source alternative, like a data hub or even like some other ones, like a Munson's, or do they mostly have already looked at or tried and then come to you? Or do you see a very mixture of them? I think it's a little bit of a mixture. Obviously for a company that has a strong sort of tech angle, a uh, strong tech team, they tend to use open source first, right? They tend to at least experiment with it, right? And for companies that are not so tech focused, they may not even want to touch the open source, right? Because they know from day one, that's just not a thing that they want to spend their precious, you know, engineering resources on. So they will say, no, don't bother. We just want a good managed solution. So yeah, we do see both. One thing we also see a lot is if you think about it, and, and I think that you sort of alluded to that before as well. Now it's universally understood that you don't want to build your own data warehouse. So even if there is an open source data warehouse, which I think there is, right? Probably some, there's some project out there. You will see very, very few companies want to adopt that. Why? Because it's just not in their interest to do that, right? It doesn't make sense. It's not a core business. It's not a core competency. 
Why would they want to do that? I think people will start come to the same realization when it comes to data catalog slash metadata platform. It's like, yes, it is core to our business and whatnot. But yes, we can use the proprietary solution like the way we use the data warehouse because it doesn't make sense. That's kind of our own opinion, bias opinion, obviously. But we do see more of that coming. Also, one thing, and if you don't mind, I want to dive into that a little bit more. I think it's quite relevant, right? There are two things that you, you touch on, which is super relevant. One thing is the lock-in fear. Once again, you can argue, are you locking in yourself to Oracle or Snowflake? But that's a different debate, right? It's just a different type of lock-in. But one thing that Databricks, for example, is able to go and advertise and then sell themselves really well is, first of all, you own the data, right? The data is still parquet file sitting on your S3. We didn't take away your data. We didn't lock your data away. Second, the interface, which is Spark, is open source. So, you know, all the code, all the efforts that you spend into integrating with Databricks is probably not going to go down the drain if you decided to not go with Databricks one day. So that locking fear can be alleviated through two means. One is, hey, the interface is open source, so don't worry about it. You don't, you're not going to waste engineering resource on that. And second, you ultimately still own the data. We didn't take it away from you. So in the case of Metaphor, we actually also provide both, believe it or not. I believe we are the only vendor out there which provide your metadata back to you as parquet file sitting on S3 <laughs> that you can query as well. That, I don't think anyone out there can claim the same. Right? So no lock-in fear per se. You know, your metadata is still yours. And this means everything, right? Everything you enter into the system, right? All the knowledge, all the tagging, everything lineage, everything we collected, all of that, we basically hand it back to our customer. We hand it back for two reasons. One is like the lock-in fear, but more importantly, we actually had a Presto engine sitting on top of it so they can actually do analytical workflow on top of their own metadata. We still have our transactional stuff going on, so they're not going to go and query the transactional database directly. But that alleviates a lot of, that makes a lot of discussion much, much easier, essentially. Um, we just say, hey, look, you're going to get that thing yourself, right? Yes, granted, the exact format and whatnot, you still kind of need to figure out how to use it, but we didn't lock in your data, so to speak, right? And it's, it's in the standard format that you can consume afterward. And in terms of the sort of the open source interface, all our connectors and crawlers are actually all open source. And then that interface, by extension, that interface itself is also open source. We open source it not because we want community to contribute. Obviously, it'll be great if they do. But more importantly, for two reasons, like I mentioned before, one is auditability, right? So anyone who say, hey, I'm going to run your crawler in my company, I don't know if that's a good idea. We say, There's a source code, go and take a look at it, right? Obviously, we say we only ask for minimum permission, but if even that, if you feel like you're not comfortable, here's a source code right there, open source already. They go and take a look at it. No one ever complains once we say that, essentially, that's the first thing. The second thing is the interface itself is also open source, which means if you ever need to do your custom integration with Metaphor, once again, that interface is open source. So your, your engineering effort won't be quote unquote wasted afterwards. Of course, it's not as straightforward as Spark, so to speak, right? But let's face it, right? If you really get into the deep weed of Databricks, I don't think your code will be as easily portable <laughs> into the open source Spark 
right? For example, if you take on Unity Catalog as your dependency, yeah, yeah, that's a different story at that point, right? So I think there is definitely the concept of we are coding against an open source interface that will make login fear a little bit less. Anyway, so that's a very roundabout way of answering your question. Yeah, 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 hopefully. I think you were very thoughtful about taking what some of the benefits are of open source and then folding them into the product to try and alleviate fears from customers. It's just a very thoughtful approach. Can we talk a bit about how you've positioned the company? Like a social, we usually don't hear the word social when we're talking about data catalogs or data products in general. So why did you kind of think about positioning the company that way? And how have you iterated on messaging to make sure that you're targeting the right set of potential customers? I'm actually surprised that other than us, no one else is using that message. The reason behind that is if you open up, you know, data governance textbooks, you know, data governance 101, if you will, the definition of data governance says there are three important components and all of them have to work in order for data governance to work. One is tooling, obviously. Second is process, processes. And then the third one is people. They say very clearly, <laughs> people is a third of the problem, if not more, so to speak. So by that extension, your product has to work with people, right? If that's not the case, then how are you gonna make it work in a data governance environment? So to us, we actually take it almost, you can say, you can argue we take it to the extreme by saying that our product is a social platform. But what that really means is obviously not people you know, recording TikTok dance music in our application, but we place people front and center in the entire product. So no longer are you dealing with tables and columns and dashboards and all that. You're dealing with real people behind those things, so to speak. Of course, there's gonna be table, columns, reports and whatnot, but everything will have a face attached to it, so to speak. One thing we discovered when talking to a lot of people out there is for better, for worse, people trust people. People don't trust data itself directly. You can throw all the metadata, all the technical metadata, linears, data quality, yada, 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 to people. And they will say, well, I just want to see who's using this. And do I trust that person? <laughs> you know, this sort of trust by proxy thing is actually much stronger than people think. I'm not saying that that's the only way people judge it. But if I only have five seconds to decide if this is a dashboard table I should use, what is that one signal that I'll be looking at? I bet you that a lot of people will say, I'm just going to look at who's using it or who, which group is using it if it's not a single person, right? So I'm actually more surprised that no vendor other than us is, you know, sort of singing this praise on, on the social angle of the catalog, but that's who we are. We do believe, and, and we think our experience inside of LinkedIn definitely help us on that front because we've seen having a pure technical metadata solution or catalog is not going to solve the problem. We've seen how it failed in real life. So that is why when we first came out, we said, hey, look, we want to make sure that we put people front and center in that whole process. Yeah, because I think you wrote a post, and I'm just pulling up it, about how you're rewriting the grand rewrite of Data Hub, right? And I think most of the points you have here is actually more technical, right? Model first, push base, but then from a product point of view, it sounds like the social aspects of it is actually another change. I don't think the data hub, I guess looking at open source, you can't really see any social dynamics or people elements. There are people authors or, or some labels, but I don't think you see like the full on productization of that, right? So yep. there's like 
technical investments and there's also like the social people advancements side. And I'm just curious, like, what did you learn from LinkedIn days that help you able to create this sort of social parts of it? Do you see LinkedIn are already referring to each other of trust through this data? And was there tools around Data Hub that kind of able to convey this information? Or how much is that is learned from your LinkedIn days and how much is learned from your customers? I'm just curious, like, how do you combine them? Right. So just to clarify the blog that you refer to, which is available at datahub.metaphor.io, if you're interested in reading that, is a pure technical discussion, right? That is not a product discussion. It's more like, hey, you know, what technical mistake that we made and, you know, how we address them in the new company, a new product, so to speak. So we didn't touch on the exact product angle there. And also, granted, Data Hub is a pretty good, decent technical metadata catalog. But as you rightly point out, it doesn't really have any social angle to it. And for a good reason, because that's kind of the reality inside of LinkedIn. It was mostly confined as a technical metadata catalog. There are enough of use cases that require pure technical metadata. Like I said, the compliance stuff, there's very minimal you know, social involved in that perspective. So the products still thrive inside of LinkedIn, right? Despite being a social network itself, we didn't really put a lot of efforts into making a social product inside of LinkedIn. After we came out and we sort of really reflect upon it, we realized that even inside of LinkedIn, the adoption is still highly skewed towards the core data team issues. And believe it or not, and this might sound really silly, but I can tell you that the most non-technical use cases, right? So essentially analysts and even analytic engineers, if you will, and business analysts that come to Data Hub for, at least at the time when we were there, was for access requests. Because <laughs> that's the only way to request access. So they are forced to come into Data Hub to request access. Not because they love the product, not because they really find a whole lot of value out of it. They do obviously find some value in it, but it's not really super compelling, so to speak. So when we first came out, we kind of knew that already from our experience at LinkedIn. To make this truly successful, once again, coming back to the data governance is a team sports sort of concept, we don't have the same stick inside of LinkedIn that goes after everybody and say, go and use Data Hub because access control is from there, compliance is there, so you got to do it. We don't have that same forcing function outside of LinkedIn uh, with other customers. So we better turn it around and make it a carrot, right? We want to make sure that people come here because they get value out of it, not because they're forced into going there. And then that is where the whole social angle become very, very prominent. So given your journey as like starting out as a potential open source founder, <laughs> then deciding not to go open source and looking at, or maybe speaking to other founders trying to build in the modern data stack, what have you learned about what makes sense to open source versus what doesn't? Like what types of products, particularly in the data stack, do you think can really benefit from the open source model? So the most successful open source project that we're seeing out there sort of fall into a couple buckets. One is kind of a framework bucket, right? React will be one of the things that come to mind. Those generally have zero commercial value, so to speak. They're super popular. But how are you going to start a company around React? I really have no idea, right? I mean, no one at Meta was able to do that so far either, right? So it is super popular because it's a framework that a lot of people want to use, but there isn't a direct you know, business value attached to it. And there isn't a 
business angle that you can extend the project to either. Very difficult to do that, right? Is it going to be a no-code React? That would be kind of weird anyway, right? So, so that is first kind of super popular project, right? You know, Linux will be another example, right? Super, super useful. You can argue that there's probably more business value for Linux, but ultimately a lot of Linux use cases do not directly lead to commercial success or value there. The second kind of use cases like tools, right? Toolings. You can think of it as, you know, DBT will be a good example in the modern data stack, but Terraform will be another good example. These sort of tooling generally has one angle that is super compelling. When you look at it, immediately you get the value right there. Oh, that is the value why we want to use a tool like this. And it has a whole lot of integration services. Terraform will be a perfect example, right? And you now have to integrate with every single AWS services and Azure and GCP. There's a whole lot of integration tool, if you will, that needs to be done. And this sort of thing often work well in a sort of a open source setting, right? Where the you know, community can come and contribute to whatever weird vendor that they use. They can expand that integration surface pretty easily. Those things are generally a little bit tricky in terms of how you do commercialization because that initial core value, hey, the fact I can declare my infra as code or I can you know, declare my, for lack of a better word, business model as code, right? In the case of DBT, that particular value is so strong in and of itself that if you give that away as open source, what else can you attract people to use your thing? It's already a complete solution at that point. Sure, there's you know enterprise readiness, yada, yada, yada. You can build around it, build some whistles around it, but it's very hard to build another value proposition as strong as the original value prop. Databricks is another perfect example there, right? If Databricks, all they sell is a better Spark engine, I don't think that they'll be where they are today. The reason why they're so popular, let's face it, is kind of their notebook interface. At least initially that was the thing, right? That is a big value prop that is almost orthogonal to Spark is running underneath, right? It could have been any other languages at that point, right? So, and quote, <laughs> I think this is probably got quoted so many times at this point, but Ali famously say that to start an open core company, you have to hit two grand slam or two home run, essentially. You have to have a super successful open source and you have to come up with another super successful product angle to that open source. And by that extension, that's why when you try to open source a complete solution, it's very, very hard to commercialize after that. And Data Hub is, to some extent, a complete solution. It's not just a framework for you to declare metadata. It's not just a framework to ingest metadata. It's not just a framework to index metadata. It's the whole shebang, right? <laughs> including the UI and everything. You can literally take that and then work. And then I'm pretty sure if they didn't have the UI or if we didn't open source the UI, the project will never be as successful. So it's very tricky in that, in that space to say, hey, now you have the UI, now you have solved your basic problem. I'm going to have another very strong use case for you that guess what? You got to pay for, right? That, that is very hard because the solution is already complete at that point. So some projects are ideal for open source, open core, and some are just naturally not. And drawing that line is extremely hard. I think you had an interview with Adam, right? He also mentioned similar things as well. It's really hard to draw that line, right? You're constantly fighting against two almost opposing interests, right? One from your sort of the business side, sales teams and whatnot, arguing certain feature which you never release to open source versus the other side, which is your open source community who love you, but 
also hate you for not providing this feature or not accepting in some extreme cases accepting community contribution to the feature because that's gonna you know really impact your business interest right well I think last question we usually end on is <laughs> your number one advice for other open source project founders so any, do you have any quick advice the one biggest advice you'll give them I think don't do open source just for the sake of doing open source it's not gonna be an easier route let's put it this way if anything it's gonna be a harder route do it just because it fits because you know that's how the company was started because it's strategic if you don't do it you cannot survive because all your competitors are open source for example right? do it for that reason don't do it because it's cool don't do it because it's gonna give you a good funnel even you're gonna shoot yourself in the food later on you know I'm not really qualified if you think about it to talk about you know running an open core company because we never did but we have seen enough pitfall in that field hopefully this will ring true to some people. I think those are good words to end on. Thank you so much for doing this with us. This was awesome. No worries. I really enjoyed this. Thank you.